Morning. morning. We're continuing this morning in our study of the book of Acts. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, you've got a church Bible, we're in Acts chapter 10, and we're on page 1042. And we'll be turning to that just in a moment. I wonder if you've ever found yourself, um, perhaps at a party, or a conference, or a celebration of some sort, that really is absolutely nothing to do with you, and you've, you've sort of got there as a bit of a spare part. And you find yourself in this crowd of people, and you just feel like a total outsider. Any, anyone ever been in that situation? Yeah? Anyone enjoyed that situation? No. It's not great, is it? I used to um, work as a full-time musician, and as part of that, I used to go playing the piano at wedding, wedding receptions. And I'd get all dressed up in my dinner jacket, and I'd go and play this cheesy lounge music, and I'd be sat there in the corner of the room. You know what? Everybody used to ignore me. Because it was somebody else's wedding. There was nothing I could do. There was no way in of me getting to know people. It was just one of those bizarre situations. The church, up until chapter 10 of the book of Acts, is very much a Jewish community. The Gentiles, even those who were believing in Jesus, were very much on the outside. Whereas what we start to see unpacked here, as we're going to go through chapter 10, is that they become welcomed in. Chapter 10 and 11 is this big turning point. Um, If you look back at chapter 9, there's a bit of a hint that something is going to change when um, Saul is called by the Lord. And there is that instruction given that he's going to be the instrument that God uses for the message to go out to the Gentiles. Because Jews and Gentiles, they had quite an awkward relationship at this point. If you were um, a Gentile and you went round to a Jewish person's house, it was very difficult to eat together because of the dietary laws and all those kind of things. So it's very much a difficult relationship. Now, I love the book of Acts. I hope you love the book of Acts as we've been going through it and finding that it's, it's fantastic and there is so much in here. But these chapters that come after the conversion of Saul, for me, are a bit of a highlight because they show just how broad the scope of the gospel is. They show just how wide-ranging the gospel message is. If you've got your Bible in front of you, we're not going to read all of this because there's far too much of it, but just have a look at um, verses 9 to 17. It's about Peter's vision. And this is what comes before the passage that we're actually going to be reading this morning. And what happens? Peter has a vision. Could we just have the the PowerPoints up? I've got a, a delightful picture of this vision. Is it coming? It's all right? It'll be worth the wait, don't worry. This doesn't seem to be doing a great deal. You can do it. There you go. Look at that lovely picture. Peter had a vision of all these different animals descending from heaven on a blanket. I don't know about you, but if I had that kind of vision, I'd be thinking, God, what is this about? What is this vision about? And what happens after that vision has taken place is a voice comes from heaven and says, kill these and eat them. And you're looking at those animals that were in there. These were all animals that Peter was forbade by the law to eat. And Peter is bemused. He's thinking, what on earth is this about? You know, sometimes God will speak to us, and we're not quite sure what he's saying at the time. Sometimes God will speak into our lives, and we're thinking, Lord, what is this about? It might be through circumstances. It might be as we open the Bible, and something just isn't clicking. It might be through the voice of his Spirit ministering to us. And we're wondering, Lord, what is it 
that you're actually saying to us. Now, if today you're in that position, if today you're thinking God might be trying to get your attention about something, but you're not quite sure what, hang in there. This passage is one of those encouraging ones because Peter has to hang in there and wait until his eyes are opened. So, let's turn to the Word of God. Let's look in our Bibles. We're going to read from verse 23 to verse 48. So, it's the bit after this vision has happened and it sort of unpacks what's been going on. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I am only human myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with Gentiles or visit them. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts those from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him up from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. What an amazing passage. You know, God is a God of grace. And I'm hoping he's a God who, oh yes, he is, who mends PowerPoint. Here we go. 
God is a God of grace. You know, our relationship with the Lord is based purely on grace. Grace is God's um, way of reaching into our lives. We cannot earn it. We don't work for it. We can't make ourselves acceptable before God without it. It's all based on what Jesus has done on the cross, taking our sins, offering us forgiveness, offering us rebirth. Grace is amazing. But there is almost a flip side to grace. Don't suddenly get scared. I'm not going to say anything heretical, hopefully. But grace can actually cause us, as fallen human beings, problems. Because I don't know about you, but I often find that I am inherently selfish. There is something deep inside of me that wants things to go my way, wants things to be as I want them to be. And sometimes it can be very difficult when God reaches out in grace to people who I find it difficult to cope with. It can be really, really difficult. This passage is all about the church being changed. It's about, the, if you like, the, the doors of the church being flung wider than perhaps people were thinking was possible. It happened with Saul as he was converted on the road to Damascus. You know, Saul was the one who was persecuting the church. He was the one who was giving these murderous threats out to Christians. He's called by Jesus. He's accepted in. And now the doors fling even wider still. The gospel is going to be now preached to the Gentiles. I don't know if you regularly pray for people who aren't yet believers in Jesus. And I hope you do. I hope as a church that is something that we're really about, that we, we pray for people that they will experience firsthand the grace of God, the rebirth that God brings through Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes when we're praying for people, it can actually be quite difficult, can't it? Because we can sometimes think there are people who are just so far away from God that God's grace can't reach them. And we can keep praying and praying and praying, and we think, where's the fruit from these prayers? What's actually happening? We can become despondent. And we can think, Lord, where, you know, where are you? What are you doing? Does anyone know who this man is? Go on, someone shout it out. Richard Dawkins. Does anyone want to tell us what Richard Dawkins does in a sentence? He's a, a scientist and an atheist. He's, yeah, he's, he said this. The essence of life is a statistical improbability on a colossal scale. The essence of life is a statistical improbability on a colossal scale. Now, I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, what a truly miserable outlook on the universe. What a soul-destroying existence to have. Now, you can look at somebody with that kind of worldview and think, that person is so far away from the gospel that Jesus can't reach them. That person is just so far away from understanding anything about the grace of God that God can't reach them. But you know what? That bloke is asking all the right questions. He's asking questions that go beyond science and saying, well, why is there anything at all? Why is there the stuff that is around? He just hasn't encountered the risen Jesus yet. He is not beyond the gospel. Nobody is beyond the reach of the good news. Nobody is beyond the reach of the grace of God. You know, we should be praying for people who are searching. We should be praying for people who we think, they're miles away. Saul was miles away. But he was asking all the right questions. 
You know, we've been hearing about Alpha this morning, haven't we? You may have friends at the moment who are asking those searching questions. Have the courage to invite them to Alpha. Have the courage to invite them to encounter the risen Jesus. When God breaks into people's lives, when people encounter the grace of Christ, what happens? People are transformed, aren't they? You look at what happened to Saul. He went from this murderer, uh, this people, this person, sorry, who was giving these murderous threats to the church, to somebody who would go and preach with great power the gospel of transformation. But as the gospel goes out, as the doors of grace, if you like, get wider and wider, it can actually make the church a rather messy place. Because the people who we start inviting to come and see Jesus and come and see what the message of the gospel is about, they don't immediately absorb our church culture. They don't immediately become like we are or know all the things that goes on in church. And grace can actually remove us from our tight little boxes of keeping things all nicely contained. The early church was just about to experience this. It goes from being this rather tight-knit Jewish community of people with the same kind of backgrounds to a community of people from all over the place, from every nation under the sun. And these verses, they mark the transition in the life of the church. So let's see what happens. Peter goes to Caesarea. He goes to Cornelius' house. Now, if you were to read earlier on in the chapter, Cornelius is a centurion. He's a God-fearing man, but he's a Gentile. He's part of the Italian regiment of the Roman army. But the Lord had appeared to him, had appeared to him in a dream, and said, bring Peter from Joppa. So Peter comes, he, he's, he's in the, the place where Cornelius is, he enters the house. What does Cornelius do? He bows down in front of him in reverence. It's a strange reaction, isn't it? It's a strange reaction. Peter won't have any of it. Peter will not accept that way of behaving. You know, only Jesus is worthy of worship. But we live in a culture, don't we, where celebrity and wanting to put people on pedestals is very much part of our life. You know, the amount of magazines that must sell week on week are all all about celebrity. They don't contain news. They're just gossip about people's lives. And all kinds of people end up as celebrities. If you've been watching the news this week, you'll probably have seen that the Pope has been in America. Now, a lot of what the Pope has had to say, people have not really liked. But they've liked having such a celebrity there. And they've, you know, in their tens of thousands, they've been at the side of the streets cheering him on. Peter will have none of this. There is no such thing in the Bible as a Christian celebrity. There is only one Jesus who is worthy of worship. The cross is the great leveler. You know, we're all equal at the cross. We all stand in need of God's grace. But it's as this story unfolds that the dream that Peter had had about all these weird and wonderful animals descending on a sheet starts to make sense. God starts to open his eyes and say, this is what it's about. Verse 28. God has shown me that I should not call any man pure or unclean. That dream was not a dietary dream, primarily. But it was a dream about including Gentiles into the gospel. About including them into the body of the church. The dream was a removal of the barriers that at that point had been put up. Cornelius then starts to tell uh, the account of what had happened, how he'd actually come to the point of inviting Peter to his house. 
Look at verse 31, if you've got your Bibles there. God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. It's quite an interesting verse, actually. Because we affirm grace, don't we, this morning. We say that we get into relationship with God through grace. Yet, how did God listen to Cornelius' prayer? Why did he listen? Because of his gifts to the poor. You know, we can delight God in the way that we live. We can delight God in the way that we grow in discipleship and the way that we grow in Christ-likeness. Yesterday, um, me and my friend Paul, who sat down here, um, climbed Snowdon. Do you want some evidence? There we go, that's me. You'll be glad to know that I don't have any sort of sense of building my identity on how I look. You probably think that that's quite a good thing, really. Anyway, that's me up Snowdon. Well, you know, we set off early yesterday morning to get to Snowden, and it took us about two hours. Well, it actually took us two and a quarter because a McDonald's called us in and demanded that we ate breakfast. Um, but it took us about that length of time to get there. But, you know, we couldn't start climbing until we'd arrived at Snowden. I can't start climbing Snowden from my living room. You need that journey, and only a car or some form of transport can get you there. In a sense, that is what grace does for us. It gets us into the relationship with God. It gets us to the place where we can start that journey of discipleship. It's the only way that we can come into relationship. But then, if you like, we can start climbing with the Lord. We can start becoming that person that Jesus wants us to be. Cornelius is a man of prayer. He's a man who has understood grace. He's a man who is living a selfless life. And the Lord delights in how he's living. I have heard your prayers and your gifts for the poor. I wonder what the Lord would say to you about your life. Would you delight in those things that are showing Christ-likeness in your character because of what God has done in you through grace? What motivates you today? What motivates our church? What motivated us to climb Snowden yesterday? Was it a sense of duty? Was it a sense of, I have to do it? Or is it out of love for what you're doing? Is it out of love for what you're doing? You know, I'm finding out quite a lot about the church here. And the last um, two weeks, I suppose, have been a really steep learning curve. Um, And I'm finding out that this church is really busy, which is fantastic. So much going on. You've got a real heart for mission. You've got a heart for, you know, sharing the gospel. Um, Incredibly generous as a church. All these amazing things. But, you know, you can do amazing stuff out of the wrong motives. You can do all this stuff and be anchored in a sense of duty, not doing it out of grace and out of love for Jesus. You know, the flip side of grace is not a good place to exist. The flip side is not a good place. When I was a younger man, I'm saying younger, I can still count myself young. I just start counting myself against bigger time spans, like historical periods of the earth or whatever it might be. But when I was younger, I think I was actually quite guilt-driven as a Christian. I used to feel terribly guilty if I missed a quiet time. I used to feel like, you know, God would be putting a a cross by my name if I I didn't go to church on a Sunday evening. No joke, I did. I used to feel really bad if I didn't offer to play for that second service on a Sunday, or whatever it might have been. And I was guilt-driven. It wasn't grace-driven. It wasn't out of love for Christ. It wasn't out of that way of thinking. And you know what? It really wears you out. 
It condemns you. It wears you out. It has nothing to do with what the Bible says. And it undermines grace that has saved us in the first place. You know, Claire and I, um, we've been married for, for 15 years. Now, Claire may disagree um, with what I'm about to say, but I think we actually have quite a good marriage. Um, <laughs> she's putting her head down. And what, one of the reasons I say that is because after 15 years of marriage and sort of three and a half years of um, going out with each other before then, so we've sort of known each other for 17 and a half years, is it? Yeah, quite a long time. We still actually want to spend time together. So every week in our diaries, we will put something in where we're either going for lunch or we're, you know, we're, we're spending an afternoon together and just enjoying one another's company. That comes out of a desire to want to do that because we love one another. If that came out of a sense of duty and a sense of guilt, it's not great. That'd be pretty soul-destroying to have to put that in the diary for those reasons. Living a Christian life that isn't rooted in grace, will wear you out. As a church, if we're not rooted in grace, we can do all the great stuff we want, but it will wear us out. You know, the Lord loves us. The Lord delights in us. And he loves it when we love him. There's a fantastic verse in Zephaniah, probably not a book that we read that regularly. But this verse is amazing. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. You know, I just got this image with that verse of, you know, the father heart of God rejoicing over his children with singing. I don't know those of you who um, are parents, when you had little babies, did you ever sing over them? You may have done. They may not have appreciated it, but you may have sung over them. You know, in our house, we, we do a lot of random singing. You know, I sometimes hear the boys singing to the dog. Um, but there's that sense of intimacy with singing, isn't there, when you're singing over somebody, just, just out of an outpouring of love. The Lord delights and sings over us. Anyway, let's get back to the story. Verse 34, if you look in your Bibles, Peter begins to speak. And I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. This is a verse that is going to have massive implications for the church. But back in Isaiah um, 49, verse 6, it says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The promise for the Jews the promise for the Israelites was that not that they were going to hold God to themselves and just be keepers of the promises of God, but that they were to display it to the rest of the world so that salvation may be offered to everyone. What Luke is telling us in these chapters of Acts is that this is taking place. This is taking place. Verse 34 to 43, we have um, Peter's sermon, if you like, And it's the gospel message, it's all about the cross, it's about resurrection, it's about the judgment of the living and the dead, and it's about forgiveness. It's a great little condensed gospel message. And then we get to the end of the passage, and while Peter is still speaking, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. What had happened at Pentecost to the Jews now happens, there isn't as much detail given here, but the same kind of event 
now happens to the Gentiles. There are times in life where, um, I don't know if you've, if you've ever found this, but you know there's a right thing to do. You know that there's a situation that demands a response. But you know that the right thing is actually going to be costly. It's going to have loads of ramifications to it. Have you ever found yourself in that position where, where you've got a decision to make? You know what the right thing is, but you think, actually, this is going to make big changes to my life. It seems like we've been here ages. I don't, know, I don't know about you. You may think, oh, you just seem like you've just arrived, but we feel like we're part of the furniture already. Um, but actually, it's three weeks, and it's only a few months ago since we were sat um, at my mum and dad's house, and it was the evening after we'd been to preach with the view in the morning, and you were all voting as a church meeting in the evening, and I was sat looking at my phone every few seconds waiting for Peter to send me a text. And eventually it came through, and there was that sense that, you know, God has called us to be here. Now, we knew that we were going to say yes. We'd already worked that through in prayer with the Lord and felt that was on God's heart. But, you know, in one word, yes, there are massive ramifications. And it starts to think, you're starting to think, oh, we're going to have to move house. The boys will have to change school. We've got to find somebody to live in the house that we own. And then your brain starts to go into overdrive mode. We may have just changed who our boys are going to marry. (laughs) (laughs) Our future grandchildren may look different from now on. You know all these stupid things that go through your head? And you start just, your brain goes whirring, whirring, whirring. And you think, hold on a minute. I've just got to trust the Lord. You know, don't get too carried away. But sometimes you have to make the right decision, but you realize it's going to cost. You realize there's going to be these ramifications. Peter's response in verse 47 is the right one. Look what he says. He says, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? He's had the vision. God has spoken to him. God has confirmed with the Holy Spirit. And now he says, well, let's baptize these people. They are now welcome as full members of the body of Christ. So the church goes from this messianic Jewish community to what is going to become the biggest group of people the world has ever seen, the body of Christ that is growing bit by bit, day by day, and continues to do so. But it becomes messy. As the book of Acts is um, continuing, we start to find out that eventually Peter and Paul will come into dispute with how to deal with Gentile believers. What has been a nicely packeted um, group of people now starts to have the implications of the doors being opened wider and wider. And it's back to grace. When God's grace is poured out on people, it can have that effect on those people who are on the other side, if you like. How would these Jewish believers have felt when this happened? Well, what does Luke tell us? Well, Luke tells us, he says they were astonished. They were astonished that the Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles. But I wonder in that word astonished whether there's actually rather a lot more going on. I wonder whether they were concerned. They're nice groups were now going to be ripped apart in an amazing way. Different cultures were now going to enter into their group. I wonder whether they'd have felt vulnerable. Where will this all end? How big is this gospel that's being preached? You know, grace affects people. And when we hear stories of grace and how God has worked and his unmerited favor has been poured into into people's lives, 
We always like the side of the person who's been changed. But I wonder how often we think about grace and the flip side of those people who are actually round and about. There are a few events in the Gospels that I just want to think about very briefly, just to to illustrate this, really. John chapter 8. The woman caught in adultery. I don't know if you you know the story. But she's brought before Jesus. And we're amazed by the way that Jesus reaches out to her in grace and just says, you know, go and sin no more. Your life can be turned around. I wonder if you've ever thought about the poor families who'd been involved, about how that woman's behavior had probably destroyed her home, about the man who she was committing adultery with. I wonder how those people would feel about the unmerited favor of God being poured into the heart of that woman who'd committed adultery. Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus, you know, the little man who climbs a tree because he can't see Jesus, the tax collector, the one who'd been ripping people off for years. Now we think, brilliant, brilliant story. It's all about grace. It's all about God pouring this unmerited favor into his life. I wonder how you'd have felt if your home had been wrecked by his financial misbehaving, if you like. Now, all right, he tries to put things right at the end, but the damage may have already been done. The damage may have been done. How would you have felt if you'd have had to be on the receiving end of that grace? Luke 23, the thief on the cross. What does Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. Totally unmerited, unlooked for grace that is poured into somebody's life. How would you have felt if you'd have been one of the families who that thief on the cross had robbed and destroyed your life? Would you have wanted grace for that person? Or would you have wanted judgment and justice? Grace. It's amazing. But it can make a mess of things. Because we're human. We don't always respond in the way that Christ responds to us. We like to put up barriers, whereas God knocks them down. Jesus offers grace through the cross, through the shedding of his blood, he offers forgiveness. And just as we receive grace, you know what? We're called to give it. We're called to give grace out. Matthew 10, verse 8. Freely you've received, freely give. Now, I'm not talking about cheap grace. I'm not talking about grace that allows perpetual sin to carry on in people's lives or in the body of Christ. But when we see people who, perhaps they've come into our fellowship or they've come into our lives and we see that God is doing a work in them, we have to respond graciously. We've received, we give. You know, the gospel today is for Jews, it's for Gentiles, it's for atheists, it's for agnostics, it's for those who've been involved in crime, it's for those who are the victims of crime, it's for those who've been abused, but it's also for the abusers, it's for the refugees. It's for the rich, it's for the poor. It's for everyone. That's the message of this passage. The gospel is for everyone. Nobody is out of the reach of the gospel. Grace has been given. Will we respond in grace to other people? Will we welcome, even when things look a bit messy? And we think, well, we like our nice, neat church community. We don't want to fling the doors wide enough so that actually it becomes a bit difficult for us. 
But you know, that's God's call to us, isn't it? There is a gospel to be preached. There are people, if we open the doors and look down our roads here, whose lives are broken, we don't need to travel far. The neighbors of the church, the people in Lim, the people in Thelwall, in Highley, in Grappenhall, and I can't remember anywhere else around here yet. You have to forgive me. <laughs> so if you live somewhere else, include the name of where you live. The gospel is open to all those people. They need to hear it. They need to hear the saving love of Christ. You know, grace has been given to us. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. And we're called to be gracious in return. Lord, help us to be that kind of welcoming place. Help us to be a church that flings wide the doors and creates the mess that only the gospel can bring because Jesus saves. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that you are a God of grace. Thank you that you call us in grace. You have um, died for us. You set us free. Lord, I want to pray for our church here that you will help us not to be a church who boxes ourselves in and puts barriers around and says, these people cannot find you. Lord, just help us to, to have that huge view of the gospel and the power of the gospel in people's lives. So Lord, just even in these moments, would you draw to mind perhaps those people who we need to be praying for? Those people at the moment who seem so far away from you. Lord, would you draw them to yourself? And Lord, for us as a church, I want to pray that you would help us to not be concerned in a sense about our own neatness. But just like the early church was in these verses, to be prepared to say, actually, the gospel is for everyone. And if that means us rolling up our sleeves and getting our hands dirty, Lord, then so be it. Lord, we just long to see people reach for you. I want to pray also this morning, perhaps for those of us here who, actually, the motivation for our Christian living isn't grace. But it's duty, it's guilt. Lord, would you set us free from that? Would you set us free this morning? Lord, you delight over us in singing. Help us to realize that. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.